wiretappers. I just want to thank a whole lot of people here in front of the uh, exciting story of the boy on the bicycle. It's a little bit different story. I, sometimes I get tired of doing just mafia stuff. My friend Nate Henley has a really great story about a wrongful conviction up in Toronto, Canada. First of all, I want to thank uh, the other Michael McCollum uh, for making a nice donation. You know, Michael McCollum, the uh, former Hells Angels, has been on the show, but this is another man named Michael McCollum who uh, listens as a big fan and, and has made a nice donation, uh, I believe through PayPal. Um, PayPal donation is uh, kind of a double thanks to Dan Bashford down in Australia, or triple or quadruple, I'm not sure how many now. Uh, Dan, I really appreciate your support. Drew Iannone has been a PayPal supporter. Thanks a lot, Drew. A couple of times for him, I believe, maybe three. Marion Stinnett, I got a nice donation from him. And then off of, uh, actually, Rick Jones and Richard Sullivan. Continuing it, staying in there, guys. I appreciate what you've done for the podcast. Bo Bergeron, staying right in there, Bo. Hope I keep pronouncing your name right. Uh, give me lots of shots in the beer here. Uh, Zach Swanson, uh, Mark Ryan, Casey Walsh, Brett Giuliano, just all kinds of people. I don't want. I can only thank so many people at a time. There's my friend uh, Farrell from down in, uh, down under Australia. Uh, thanks a lot. I've got a couple of Australian stories coming up for you guys, you and Dan, and uh, other Australian fans down there. We're it's kind of kind of scary. It's like I'm all over the world. Another thing I've got coming up, I uh, got in touch with Joe Pistone, the Donnie Brasco dude, and he's gonna give me a soundbite. I I don't really want to tell his whole story. Everybody knows that story and seen the movie and all that, but he has a particularly interesting little some comments about Lefty Ruggiero. Then I have my friend Steve St. John, who was actually was a cellmate and in the penitentiary with Lefty Ruggiero, so he will give us his take on that also, as well as Joe Pistone. So we've got many more exciting podcasts coming up. Uh, keep listening and sit back and enjoy this one that's just a little bit different than your usual podcast. Thanks, folks. <music> You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome all you wiretappers out there. I'm here with my friend from Toronto, Canada, Nate Henley. He's a true crime writer. He's, he's done a lot of things with organized crime, as you guys know, but he's got another one. Out, uh, I think his most recent book called The Boy on the Bicycle, which I found interesting. You know, we just had my friend Michael Callahan, former Illinois State Trooper, on here who wrote that book about a wrongful conviction that he worked up in uh, uh, northern Illinois. And it was an interesting story. I kind of like those stories of, of wrongful convictions and people that, that ferret that stuff out. And this most recent book of Nate's is The Boy on the Bicycle, and it's about a Young kid, 14-year-old Ron Moffat of Toronto, who was wrongly convicted of murdering a child in 1956, and the real offender was a serial killer. So, Nate, welcome. Uh, you want to help us uh, understand what happened up there in Toronto with this murder? Sure, absolutely. My pleasure, Gary. Nice to be back. Uh, my book, as uh, Gary said, is called The Boy and the Bicycle, and it's about a wrongful conviction case that happened in Toronto in the 50s, and the interesting thing is that very few people remember this case for various reasons, which I'll get into as I go, 
The quick summary is a family, the Mallette family, were visiting Toronto on um, September 1956. They were from Seelys Bay, which is a small little community near Kingston, Ontario. They were visiting a grandmother who lived in Toronto. And on the evening of September 15, 1956, little seven-year-old Wayne wandered away from his grandmother's home. His grandmother lived in East End, Toronto. The older Millette brothers wanted to go to see a movie, didn't really want their little brother tagging along, so they said, you stay with Grandma. So, seven-year-old kid, he wanders around, and he's near the grounds of in Toronto. It's called the Canadian National Exhibition, CNE. And it's this year-round fairgrounds that uh, they have in the autumn, a big exposition. And they have, you know, music, and they have, you know, circus stuff. Uh, they have various games. They have animal shows, all these sort of different things. September 15th, the grounds were closed. But little Wayne is sort of wandering around, bumps into teenage boy riding a bicycle, which is where the title of the book comes from, The Boy and the Bicycle. This teenage boy was named Peter Woodcock, and he was a serial predator who would bike around the city. He was a 17-year-old at the time. Bike around the city, encounter children, and uh, convince them to go with him to private places. Then he would molest them and beat them up. So he tried this on little Wayne. Wayne apparently grew scared, and uh, a scuffle ensued, and little Wayne was suffocated. His face was pressed into the dirt. This obviously, um, you know, sorry. Um, So little Wayne was killed. Peter Woodcock bikes away, encounters a uh, security guard, and has this weird conversation with him about, do you ever find bodies bodies in the bushes and stuff like this? Then he bikes off. After little Wayne doesn't return home, his parents grow alarmed, police are called, police start searching around, and little Wayne is found dead on the grounds of the Canadian National Exhibition. Obvious, terrible family tragedy. That same evening, 14-year-old Ron Moffat, he's watching a movie with friends at a movie theater, and he has the unfortunately bad timing to get into a big fight with his parents Uh, early the next week. He plays hooky from school. His dad finds out. He's worried about getting into trouble. So he decides to hide out. And he hides. He takes some clothes and food and hides basically in his parents' apartment building. His parents report him missing. And at the time, police were searching, uh, searching through cases of missing teenagers. That the suspect in this case of the the murder of little Wayne Millette was a teenage boy on a bicycle. Ron Moffat was 14, so he fits the age demographic, and he had worked at the Canadian National Exhibition. So police put two and two together, and they're thinking, okay, you know, this is interesting, and he ran away, you know, right after the murder. So obviously, maybe guilty conscience. Police find Ron Um, They don't bother telling his mother that they located him. They take him to a police station, interrogate him without a lawyer, without a parent present, without a guardian, and just drill into the kid, according to Ron later, like they didn't physically beat him or anything, but he felt that threat that was very much in the air, that it was sort of like, he said one of the cops said, you know, if you don't answer our questions, things are going to get rough here. 
and Wayne, um, excuse me, Ron Moffat confesses. Now, according to Ron, he said the police just sort of fed him questions and he would give them the answers they wanted. I actually have a copy of his alleged confession, and it does contain a lot of very leading questions. You know, did is this, you know, did you move the body here? You know, oh yeah, yeah, I did. Blah blah blah. Police then take him to the CNE and walk him through the crime scene. You know, according to police, Ron said, oh yeah, you know, here's where I encountered Wayne. Here's where we committed the crime. According to Ron, it was the other way around. Police would point to an area and say. That's where you first saw Wayne, right? And he'd agree. Now, at the time, and still today, a lot of people don't understand why you would confess to something you didn't do. And Ron's explanation is, you know, okay, he's a 14-year-old kid. He was from a rough family. He was a working-class family, and his parents, you know, drank a bit on the weekends. He had had a scrape at the law before when he was younger, him and a buddy tried to break into the St. Lawrence Market. Um, he got probation for that. So a bit of a rough and ready background, doesn't know a lot about things. He's got these two cops badgering him, and he said, like, anyone in that position, you know, you're 14, you'll eventually agree to anything just to get out of that. And that sort of is um, confirmed by later research I did that found that the rate of false confessions is actually much higher than people think that there was a study done of um, people who have been exonerated from death row by DNA evidence. And of the cases, something like 16 20% involved a false confession. So these guys had confessed to something science says they didn't do. I, I had a, a, a situation once. I was a young policeman, got assigned to a murder investigation. We were actually, I was working burglaries at the station, and they needed some extra help for a homicide investigation because it was a big, scary one for everybody in the city. They, there was somebody with the same gun was robbing stores and killing the clerks. And they, they hit a uh, dirty bookstore first and killed that clerk, and then about a week later robbed a radio shack and killed two young guys who were about 18, 19 years old, their first jobs, and killed both of them with the same gun. Then he went out to Independence and killed a uh, convenience store clerk with the same gun. And, boy, I tell you, this city was on edge. And the, anybody that worked in a store yeah, yeah. was on edge. And that was back when everybody read the newspaper, and, and it was big headlines in the newspaper. And I got assigned to that. And I uh, mm-hmm. uh, I had an informant out there on the street, and, and he got hold of me, and he said, hey, he said, I've got a guy that said that he's he's a suspect on this. He did this. I said, Are you, you mean he's like bragging about it? He said, yeah. He said, he's telling everybody down here in the neighborhood that he's the one that killed those two guys, those two kids downtown at the Radio Shack. And these were uh, young black kids, and they all like to go downtown and, and do little hooligan things, whether they steal out of the stores or uh, whatever. And, and, he, and he was from what we'd call a notorious crime family. Uh, they had several brothers who had been involved in crime and he was about 16 or 17 so I, I went to the sergeant over the squad and I was brand new I mean I've you know I'd never been assigned to a squad like this before the big red horner and he said okay he said let's first thing let's do he said let's get your informant in and put him on the lie box so we had my informant and he, he was a good kid he was he was about 18 himself and just a street kid he came in and he passed the lie box so we get this kid in one evening, about a, a day or two later, we get him in, and 
and since it's my deal, I'm the one that gets to interrogate him and try to get the confession because we didn't have any other physical evidence right then. We didn't, when we arrested him, we didn't mm-hmm. find a gun or didn't have anything but the unsubstantiated word of an informant. And I start questioning him, and, and he immediately starts breaking down, and he starts admitting that he killed these two guys. And I'm thinking, boy, I'm a hero here, man. And, and believe me, policemen's egos get into these kinds of things. And you think you're going to solve a, a horrendous yeah. crime like that? I mean, you're, you're going to go down and lower as, as the guy that solved the, mm-hmm. uh, the murder of the two Radio Shack guys. And, and he's breaking down, and, and I'm like thinking, damn. So I go out of the interrogation room, and I find an old-time detective, uh, Kenny Fisher. And I said, Kenny, I said, this guy's breaking down to this. He said, okay, so just a minute. Let me come in there and talk to him. So Kenny comes in, and, and he starts talking to him. And, and this guy was a longtime homicide detective. So he starts asking this kid, he said, okay, he said, tell me what you did. And we went in there, and this kid just, well, he said, I went in and robbed the store, and, and, and I just shot him. He said, well, no, no. He said, now, he said, did you get any money out of it? He said, yeah, yeah, I got some money. He said, now, well, where did you get the money from? And the kid said, oh, uh, he said, no, well, they gave me the money. And I said, well, you know, tell me. And he said, well, tell me exactly how he got the money for you. And, and he said, oh, he said, uh, you know, the, the kid walked over and, and ding, hit the cash register and took all the money out and handed me the money. And it had been in the paper that there was money was taken from these places. And and Kenny just stands up and he says, come out here. So we go out in the hall. He said he didn't do it. And I said, what do you mean he didn't do it? He just told us he did it. He described the crime scene and everything. He said, because there was no cash register in that place. There was a money drawer. And, and so he could not have rang the cash register up and, and he had reached down and take it out of the drawer had he said he took it out of the drawer then we got something we t- we kicked that kid loose and about a week later we found the real guy <laughs> but but uh, you know i still can't figure why he wanted to confess uh, it, it's a mystery to me to this day i never i have no idea what his name was i don't yeah. know what happened to him after that but they do do that yep yeah i talked to a lawyer and he said you know uh, the rate of wrongful, sorry, false confessions, much higher than people think, and it it tends to be much higher in the cases where the suspect is a juvenile, if they're not terribly intelligent, and if they're addled by you know booze or drugs or something. Often their memory's a bit foggy. Two days ago, did you did this? And they literally can't remember. Uh, uh, well. And especially if you don't have a lawyer or a parent present, and unfortunately with a lot of these things from the 50s, they weren't recorded, okay? So this interrogation was not taped. Obviously, they didn't have videotape, obviously, at the time. So we only really have, you know, the police's word for it, that this is what exactly transpired. And I guess other reasons to falsely confess, attention-seeking, uh, sometimes these guys think that they'll be, you know, hey, you know, okay, I'm accused of murder. That'll make me really cool if I confess. Uh, pressures of the moment, obviously, uh, you know, intimidation, obviously, is a big one. I think people forget just that being interrogated is not supposed to be a pleasant experience, and some people will just confess to anything just to get it to end. So Ron confesses, and they, he's put on trial, but by the time he gets to trial... In December 1956, a second kid had been murdered in Toronto. A little boy named Gary Morris, who was murdered by a boy on a bicycle who approached him. 
took him to a secluded place, molested him, and then stomped him to death, basically. So police at the time came up with these really strange conclusions. Like one guy was quoted in the paper saying, well, um, maybe the person who killed Gary Morris read about the Wayne Millette killing and this triggered him and he imitated this killing. So basically he's saying there's two different teenagers riding around the city on bicycles approaching kids and killing them, which is like not too real, not too realistic. Part of the problem is is that Toronto was a very safe city at the time. In 1956, there was only nine recorded murders in the whole city. This is a city with a population of 650,000 people or so. So police just didn't have a lot of experience dealing with murder, much less sort of a, a serial killer picking on children. And the whole concept of molesting kids was sort of off the radar for a lot of people. And so this blinkered, I think, the police's investigation. So Ron goes on trial December 1956, and he's convicted for almost no evidence against him except his confession. And there's, quote, bite mark evidence that little Wayne had bite marks on him and the police... um, hired someone to check, you know, make casts of the teeth marks and said, oh, yeah, it's a perfect match to Ron's mouth. All these other witnesses testified, well, I was at the movie theater with Ron all night. And like a number, a parade of them, I actually have a list of like about a dozen people who said, I was in the theater with this guy. So the Crown Prosecutor, that's the Canadian version of like the DA, District Attorney, he comes up with this great theory that, well, Ron did go to the movies but he slipped out of the movies, stole a bicycle, biked to the CNE because he used to work there, encountered little Wayne, killed Wayne, encountered this security guard on his bike, ditched the bike, went to a restaurant for a bite to eat, then somehow went back to the movie theater. And none of his friends noticed that he was like sweaty or freaked out or, you know, most 14-year-olds who just killed a little boy with their bare hands might be a little agitated. But, you know, no one reported anything like that. So this theory made very little sense, and it made even less sense when he realized Ron Moffat couldn't actually ride a bicycle. So he had inner ear damage, so he has balance problems. Yeah, he had boxed a bit as a kid, and he got snacked in the head or something, and it, and it screwed his ear up. So he had equilibrium problems, like maintaining balance, so he couldn't ride a bike. So it doesn't matter. He gets convicted. He gets shipped off to a training, what's called a training school, juvenile facility. Then a third kid gets killed, a little girl, Carolyn Boyce, January 1957. Police finally figure out that, okay, maybe we put the wrong guy in jail. Through some circumstances, which I detail in my book, police track down this guy, Peter Woodcock, who right from birth was a very strange kid. He was, a, you know, given up Um, for adoption. His mother was allegedly a prostitute. He had a number of mental problems. None of his, he had no friends. He had very strange behaviors and habits. One of the stories was that he had allegedly killed uh, a family, family bird and then arrayed the corpse on a piano with candles and such. He was never formally adopted, but he was taken in by a foster family who were fairly wealthy. They took him to various psychiatrist, they put him in special schools. Nothing worked. He was just this bizarro kid who was sort of in his own little world, and when he was a 
adolescence, he starts biking around the city and molesting kids. So he's taken into custody. He readily confesses, and there's no pressure you know, on him. He just, oh, yeah, yeah, I did all this. Peter Woodcock uh, is put on trial April 1957. He's found not guilty by reason of insanity. But, okay, got to understand the context. That doesn't mean he walks out of jail, out of, out of the court. At the time, that meant he's put into a psychiatric, psychiatric institution until they deem him cured. So it's another form of incarceration, yeah. basically. They ship him off to a psychiatric facility, and then a month later, uh, Woodcock, Peter Woodcock testifies in a retrial of Ron Moffat. His family had got a good lawyer for Ron. He won an appeal. Ron was given a second trial. And very interesting, at the second trial, Peter Woodcock testifies saying, I did the killing. I killed little Wayne. In fact, Peter Woodcock was apparently a little miffed that someone else was taking credit for this killing. The dental technicians who at the first trial said that these bite marks totally matched Ron Moffat, all of a sudden they say, oh, no, 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 we made a mistake. That They don't match at all. Ron, when I interviewed him, thought that might be kind of a conspiracy. I think it's more just, it was junk science. Like, bite mark investigation is considered, even today, pretty unreliable. So you can imagine in 1956 what this was like. Yeah, really unreliable. Evidence is heard, and the judge uh, acquits Ron. Judge says, it, it, it's interesting because the judge acquits him, but scolds him <laughs> for like, oh, you should have told the truth. Makes it kind of like his yeah. fault. But he says, I don't think that you did it. So he said, all the evidence points to Peter Woodcock, and none of it points to really Ron Moffat. You're free to go. See you later. So Ron is let out, but uh, the sad part is is that, um, well, two th sad things. He never received an official apology. Mm -hmm. Okay that he never received an apology from the judge or police or the government or anything. And his parents were too broke to launch a lawsuit for compensation. So, you know, some of these wrongful conviction cases, they have lawsuits and they win multi-million dollar um, settlements. Nothing like that for Ron, because his parents just, they were broke. They wanted to put it behind them. So they just, you know, they never pursued that avenue. And the third thing that was a little sad about the case, Ron was tried as a juvenile, okay? Now, the, the good part of that meant, under Canadian law, he couldn't be hanged because he was a juvenile, <laughs> but it meant his name was kept out of the papers. A blessing at the time, but what it meant was that over the years, everyone just forgot about his case. Because it's kind of hard to remember a case of, like, the papers covered the this, this story extensively, but they never put his name in. They just say, 14-year-old boy, or the suspect. So it's a little hard to remember that over the decades. Oh, that guy from the 50s who they never named never got compensation. So when I started doing research into the case, I realized that no one remembered this. And this was like a huge front-page story in the 50s, but no one knew who Ron Moffat was. Yeah. You know, the, the case itself had largely been forgotten, except in context with Peter Woodcock. And compared to, there's some other more high-profile wrongful conviction cases in Canada that everybody knows who these people are. There's Stephen Truscott, David Milgard. These are very famous names that everyone, oh yeah. So I was the first one to do a full book about Ron. He contacted me, wanted to tell his story. 
he trusted me with this story of this terrible ordeal he went through as a teenager. And he's a strong, resilient man. Nate, how, how old was he when you first got, interviewed him and talked to him? Let's see. Uh, he got in touch with me in, he was about 75 or so when he got in touch with me. Yeah, he was born in 1942. And we communicated um, via email, Skype, and phone for a number of years. And then we finally got together. I had to verify, of course, his story. And he's a wonderful guy. I mean, he, he managed to pull his life together. He was pretty messed up for a long time, as you can yeah. imagine. He had issues with alcoholism. He's had some psychiatric treatment. But he pulled himself together. He worked as a caretaker for um, a school in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Been married twice. He has grandchildren. You know, active social life, active family life now. And amazing, because I think most of us, if that happened <laughs> to you at 14, you'd be just a, like basket case for your life and he's very big on now like about um uh, reforming the canadian uh, the way uh, police interrogations are done in canada for juveniles um he thinks very strongly that you should have a parent like a mandatory yeah. lawyer or parent present because even today under canadian law like a juvenile and i'm talking under 18 they can ask for a lawyer or parent but often they're too either dopey or naive and they don't realize how much trouble they're in or they're too embarrassed. You're like 16, you're accused of something, you really want mom there. Most of them would say no and they don't realize that, no, shit, you know, kid, you really should have someone there. So I'm very much in favor of that too, of having some sort of mandatory counsel um, for juveniles and recording everything. Really? You know, uh, People don't realize the uh, the power that a kid will give to a policeman in that set in that setting. They just you know right. not only he he's physically much bigger and it's usually a man and doesn't always have to be a man, uh, but physically much bigger and and older and and a kid is you know got this you know ill formed view world view, and it's right. pretty easy to get a kid to say you know I I want to help you out here and pretty soon if you're if you're good at it, this was one thing I was always good at with uh, suspects is, like, pretty soon they, they, like, thought I was their friend. And I was trying to help them because mm-hmm. that's how you do it. Uh, that's that's the best way that always worked for me is convince them that, you know, I'm trying to help you. I'm I'm your lifeline, dude. Uh, I, can, I can help right, you. All right. you got to – you just got to start – talking about this a little bit and and i'm going to work for you i'm going to make sure that you know if, if you did it usually you start off with somebody else did it and as soon as you get them to 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 start talking about it a little bit as if somebody else did it then pretty soon you start bringing them around and you're their friend you're their lifeline yeah, and, yeah. and it's you know it's a lot easier with a kid than it is with a, a you know 25 year old man who's been around a little bit right right exactly. I, I remember i remember one guy i started doing that with him and and then kind of got tough when he wasn't coming around. And this dude says, "Man, he says I've been cuffed around all my life." He said, "You ain't you ain't doing anything with me." I said, "Okay, I'm done here." 
yeah. I, I couldn't do the tough guy stuff and threaten to beat them up or whack them around or anything like that, like you see in the movies, and, and they actually did back in the 60s and up to about the 70s. We kind of quit it by the middle 70s, I would say. I wasn't any good at that, but I was pretty good at, at getting their confidence and making them think I was their friend and I was their lifeline. I was going to help them out. Yeah, yeah. Now, usually it works, and, and they really did it. But you take a real immature kid like that with a guilty conscience about something else or, or just who knows what, you know, some screw loose in his brain and bad chemicals or whatever. Uh, you don't know how he was raised. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are from, you know, raised in really bad circumstances. Uh, yeah, and, and the tragedy with, with the Ron Moffat case is that not only did you, not only, you know, did police sort of railroad this innocent 14-year-old into a confession, it meant the real killer was still right. at large. Yeah. Two more children had to die and destroy their families before they realized, you know, they had made a mistake. And if they had figured that out right at the start, then, you know, maybe some of this could have been nipped in the bud. And I think that's that's something to always keep in mind, you know, when people talk about, you know, wrongful convictions. And sometimes some people are a little blasé and they're like, well, yeah, well, at least they got somebody or, you know, the suspect, I'm sure they're guilty yeah. of something. And it's like, okay, <laughs> right. but if, if you get the wrong guy, that means the real guy yeah. is still out there. Yeah. And God only knows what they're going to do, you know. And that's a pretty horrible yeah. thing. I've heard that said before, you know, well, he did something. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, scream! Like, he did. Well, I know he did yeah, something. But, you know, maybe maybe it wasn't this, but yeah. he did something. I I know that thought process, exactly. and I've heard that said before. Exactly. It's kind of scary. I think we're much more sophisticated yeah. today. I know in the United States, they they have to a, a kid. You can't just talk to a kid anymore. Right. Uh, here, here's how we used to do it. Sometimes we had a little burglar in once, and my partner took his walkie-talkie and he had a an earpiece for it, and he stuck his walkie-talkie down in the drawer, and the kid didn't notice it. And then he reached down the drawer and he pulled the uh, the plug-in part, the little eighth-inch plug-in part that goes into the walkie-talkie, and he pulled it out and he handed this kid, and he said, here, he said, hold, I'm going to give you a lie detector test. Hold this up against your chest. So the kid held it up against his chest, and, and we started asking questions. And John, my partner, opened up that door, and he said, oh, no, no, you're lying. You're lying on that. So now tell us what really happened, <laughs> and, then, and then he'd go, oh, and then he'd like correct himself a little bit, and yeah, and, yeah. and then one time he said, you know, he said, now I push, I'm not getting a reading, push that a little harder in your chest, so he's pushing it into his chest a little harder, you know, he broke down on all. What we really want him to do was break down on his buddies who were burglarizing everybody in the neighborhood. Right. We'd have these little, you know, nine, ten, eleven year old gangs that would start burglarizing all the neighbors' homes and getting their, you know, like change out of their uh change jar or maybe maybe a tv right. usually not even that just little things and and then once you caught two or three of them throw them in juvenile court and and they never really went away but uh, at that age but it made the neighbors uh, a lot better so I, that's how i justified doing that kind of interrogation we had the major uh, over the youth unit we were in the youth unit and the major stuck his head in and he said I don't even want to know what's going on and shut the door. But, but we, we we broke up a little gang. But, you know, if, in, in a murder and, and things like that, it, it's got to be done right. It is just has to be done right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and absolutely, absolutely, if we got caught doing that today, they'd probably fire us. <laughs> so <laughs> things yeah. are different today. 
Well, this has been great. Really, really interesting story, folks. I'd, I'd recommend if if you like that kind of thing at all that you get that boil on the bicycle by Nate Henley. And Nate's a, a pretty prolific writer. You've I see you've got the big con, great hoaxes, frauds, grifts, and swindles in American history. Oh, we yeah. need to do some. I love I love those con games and those more complex kind of crimes. We need to do pick out a couple of those and and. Oh, Tell me about that. some of those one of these days. Sure. You've, you've sure. got kind of an overview oh, of the mafia, the, the mafia guide to an American subculture. You've got American gangsters then and now. Um, Stephen Trescott, Decades of Injustice. What What is that? That's another wrongful conviction case. Okay. And that one's interesting because he is well known because he was 14, tried for murder in the 50s. 1950s, and uh, he was tried as an adult, so his name was in the paper. So that's why everybody knows about Stephen Truscott, but no one's heard of Ron Moffat, even though the crimes uh, and the suspects, both of them in 14, both cases, 1950s, very similar. Interesting. Then you got Dutch Schultz, the beer baron, brazen beer baron of New York. He's a character, isn't he? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a bit of a wacky. He, he was. And he was so immensely successful. I... Uh, Little bit I know about him. We'll have to do that one of these days. Uh, little bit sure. I know about him. Sure. He was, I don't know how he was so successful, I guess, just from being brazen. I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. got to tell us all about it. And we got uh, oh, yeah. your Al Capone oh, yeah. book and uh, Bonnie and Clyde. So, uh, oh, yeah. Bonnie and Clyde. You know, I did a, uh, myself and, a, and another retired. Police officer did a motorcycle tour of Bonnie and Clyde sites throughout the Mid South and this all the way down to Louisiana. Oh, really? And I'd stop and and uh, at some of the memorial and the markers where mainly where the policemen got killed, there would be a marker. And so I right. would stop and tell the story of, right. of how they got in a shootout with some policemen and and, and then mm-hmm. go on to the next. We ended up down at where they got. Uh, Killed down at um, Gibsland, Louisiana. You know, yeah, Louisiana. They've got an interesting little museum, a little homespun museum, operating down there in, in Gibsland. Oh, yeah. Interesting, interesting guy that runs it, and and just kind of a homespun mm-hmm. deal. No real great. Uh, uh, it's like a collection of things that that were about Bonnie and Clyde or might have been collected to right. it, uh, uh, like a car that looks like their car and some things like that. But uh, he's kind of an interesting okay. guy to talk to, so I interviewed him and threw, sure. threw it up on YouTube. I did this all. I did do a bit audio on it, all video. It was kind of fun. We got uh, Life and Times of Canada's Master Bank Robber, Edwin Alonzo Boyd. Yes, indeed. You are very prolific. Crystal death. I try. Methamphetamine. North America's Most Dangerous Drug, John Lennon, Music, Myth, and Madness. Yeah, it's one of the few non-crime-related books uh-huh. I've done. Oh, and for you budding writers out there, he's got Motivate to Create, a guide for writers. When you do some writing, like you, you'll do, you've even, you do ghost writing for people for a, a flat dollar amount, or you've done any joint uh, books with people that can't really do it? Yeah, I've done some. I've done a joint book. I did a P, uh, book about called the book Toronto Book of Everything, and it was a sort of collective effort, three of us talking about all these exciting things in Toronto. Yeah. And uh, that's about the only one I've uh, done a collective thing. I'm always happy to try my hand at new stuff, be it ghostwriting or whatever. You can see all my books, by the way, at natehendley.com. 
All my books. Yep. They're all there. That was www.natehenley, N-A-T-E-H-E-N-D-L-E-Y.com. Dot com. So you got a blog on there and, and all your books and way to contact you. Yep. Interviews, you got a section for podcasts here. You'll put your podcast that you've done with me up on it one of these days, or at least some sec- – oh, yeah, you do the whole thing, don't oh, you? Oh, absolutely. It'll go up there. Okay. So you, you yeah, want me to – uh, you want me to just – I'll send you the whole file. Did I send you the other one that we did after I edited it? I don't think I did. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I, I'll, I, when I get done editing uh, these, I'll send all of them up to you. Great. That would be terrific. All right. All right, Nate, I appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. <laughs> okay. Always great talking right. to you, Gary. You stay, you stay yeah, healthy. Yeah, you too. We'll, we'll chat again. All right, we will. We will chat again. I got plenty to talk. All right. You take care. Thanks, Nate. Bye. I look forward to hearing all this. All right. Okay. You take care. Bye. Bye. So that was Nate Henley, Toronto, Canada-based true crime writer, about his most recent book, Boy on the Bicycle, an interesting story. I know it's not organized crime, but I like to do something a little different every now and then. He's an interesting guy and and a really prolific writer. Uh, He's figured out how to make a living, probably a pretty decent living out of doing all this. So if you're a veteran, you believe you have problems that might be from PTSD connected to your service time, call your local vet center or the local VA hospital. There's also a national hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Press 1 if you're a vet. Or you can go to www.ptsd.va.gov. This site contains a lot of good resources. Don't forget, if you want to be entertained during the COVID virus shutdown here, you can get either one of my movies for $1.99 Amazon on rental. Just go to the uh, other purchase options. Brothers Against Brothers, The Savella Spiro War, Gangland Wire. We've got my book out there. I recommend you get it on Kindle so you can actually hear the uh, audio wiretaps that are connected to the book. It's Leaving Vegas, How FBI Wiretaps Ended Mob Domination of Las Vegas Casinos. And I don't know if I've got anything else out there. I've got a couple, three other, i got two other documentaries that were Civil War related and, and two books uh, that are Civil War related. How The Immortal Ten and... John Brown and the Last Train. Good evening, folks. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.